HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. This week on Meet and 3, we look at how we've adapted to a new normal during the pandemic. From the business of restauranteering and the new habits of composters to learning from the past to prepare for the future, we're exploring what came before and what lies ahead. People in charge of the collections and the acquisitions looked at me and were like, what the hell are you trying to sell me cookery for? These kids are so young and we're teaching them that it's okay to throw out all this food and we have to figure out a way to educate these students to make them, you know, lifelong environmentalists. Tune in to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts for the latest stories in the world of food. There, you're listening to Eat Your Words and Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Kathy Irway. Welcome to the beginning of the summer season here at HRN. Um, it was the summer solstice yesterday. It also is Father's Day today, so have have a great day, all the dads out there. Um, you know, let's face it, there's a lot going on in our world this summer, um, with the pandemic to continuous marches, rallies, and rallying cries for Black Lives. Um, for the safety of our staff, we're still working remotely, so I'm recording from my closet at home in Brooklyn. But onward. Um, over the spring on this show, we heard from several cookbook authors who helped me cook a lot during this pandemic. But for the next few weeks, I wanted to turn the tables a little bit and hear from authors of nonfiction, food-related books on a variety of topics, history, um, social commentary, and so forth. So I'm really excited to start it out today with Eve Turo-Paul. So Eve actually came on the show about five years ago when her first book came out. It was called A Taste of Generation Yum, How the Millennial Generation's Love for Organic Fare, Celebrity Chefs, and Microbrews Will Make or Break the Future of Food. So she has since continued to become a guru and you know, just an astute critic and observer of millennial and Generation Z tastes and behaviors, and particularly when it comes to digital media and food. So that's a big topic of her next book, which just came out last week. It's called Hungry, 
avocado toast, Instagram influencers, and our search for connection and meaning. So pleased to welcome back on the air, Eve Turo-Paul. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be back. I do wish that it was in person, but hearing your voice is wonderful nonetheless. <laughs> it feels like it feels like a fun reunion, hopefully, you know, regardless. Uh, but I was really excited to read your book because uh, the new book, it just seemed like a great, you know, jumping off point from from all the topics that you've covered, you know, from food trends like kale Jesus <laughs> crack the, yes. the discovery of how that happened a little mm-hmm. bit um and you know just obviously it's been like five years too so things have evolved and I'm really you know there's been a lot of talk about um the millennial generation I mean I just want to cover it all but you know first and foremost this book just came out last week and we've had this like global pandemic for the last couple and a, of months and a racial justice revolution exactly yeah <laughs> and a lot of digital virtue signaling and that's a huge yeah. topic of this book um yeah. so just to kind of like set the stage for folks you know you write that the food system um for well, for those under 40 you know, people are spending a record amount of their discretionary time and income on food. You know, globally, millennials purchase organic goods more than any other members of uh, any other generation. And, um, you know, this has been a trend that is just going on and on. So I'm curious how the pandemic has changed or not changed or maybe, you know, accentuated the trends that you were seeing and discovered and wrote about here? Yeah, really good question. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in a lot of ways, it's accentuating the trends. And then for others, it's completely flipping them on their head. So um, Mm -hmm. I think that so the the book Hungry is in an examination of what the impact of technology has been on human well being. Mm -hmm. And it's asking this question, you know, what do it what do we need to feel well? What's the impact of tech? And then how is that showing up in the biggest food and lifestyle trends of today? And, mm-hmm. you know, my big theory is that no one's going to spend their time and money on something uh, unless it's fulfilling a deeper need. And while it's super easy to make fun of a lot of the foodie trends that we see today, like mm-hmm. CBD matcha lattes or whatever, okay. um, at the end of the day, if someone's spending their hard earned income on it, then mm. there's a reason for it. And so this book is digging into the why um, behind these trends. And I examine really our most basic human needs for control, which includes a sense of safety, um, Mm. our need for love and belonging, and our need for feeling like our lives have meaning and purpose. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. these are universal, no matter where you live, no matter what your race, no matter your religion, socioeconomic status. And Uh, prior to COVID, what I was able to distill is really that there were like some three core feelings driving a lot of the trends that are related to those needs. So like the first Mm -hmm. big feeling is anxiety. (laughs) We're extraordinarily (laughs) anxious. And this is pre-COVID. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Which was, you know, being expressed in people wanting to have control over their food. Uh, It's one of the few things that we can have control over. Right. Safety. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So like, you know, if I don't understand what's in that, I don't want to eat it such as GMOs mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. I want the authority to say yes and no to certain things. So I like having a restrictive diet, 
you know, mm-hmm. I believe that gluten is not good for me. And there's, you know, it feels good to set up parameters. What's um, in it? I want to know. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Or like, I'm so anxious. I'm burned out. I don't have time. I'm going to, you know, pop my Soylent cap off and, and chug. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other big part of this is, is community, which you're seeing show up in like shared tables and plates and diet tribes um, an interest in like CrossFit, right. kind of like these substitutes for organized religion, but ways for people to find intimacy. And then, sorry, so a yeah. diet tribe is like Whole Thirty folks. Yes, yes. That. Okay, sorry, like a diet or cool. a diet tribe is like. Well, and I guess I should back up and say like, so anxiety was driving Hello. is driving part of this, but loneliness, mm-hmm. loneliness has been driving yeah. so many of the trends that we see prior see. to COVID, and it's this search for connection. And some people find that through their way of eating. So like for the book, I went on to a vegan speed dating event Mm -hmm. in New York. Um, And some people like roll their eyes when when I say that. And it's like, well, but like this is a value system now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, You know, and so it's like it's a way of living. It's a way of seeing the world. And increasingly people are doing that through their food choices like paleo. Same thing. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. Mm Yeah. Yeah. Um, veganism and raw. I mean, there's really a, an unending list at this point. Right, right. Um, Non-GMO is kind of the same thing. Um, and then the, the last thing is a search for meaning. There's a lot of people, even just like Google searches for like how to find meaning in life have gone mm. up exponentially over the really? last 10 years. Yeah. Like people mm. literally Googling it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like Google, tell me, how do I find meaning? Um <sighs> And so, you know, at the same time, we've seen this rise in the digital age. We've seen a rising interest in analog activities like baking bread right, <laughs> or having a garden or like going to a ceramics class. I lived in Brooklyn for 10 years and the last couple of years I was there, it was just like ceramics was like all wow, the rage. Yeah. Um, in Hong Kong, where when I was there to do research for the book, it was painting classes were okay. a really big thing in Hong Kong. There's a parallel. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, here I'm outlining anxiety, loneliness, mm-hmm. and a search for meaning. And it's like, does could anything better <laughs> define this current state that we're in? <laughs> um, so, pandemic, yeah. Right. So it's really all just being exacerbated. And it's, again, showing up in the way people are spending their discretionary time and income. And I think people are finding control by starting to grow their own food, like with a victory yes. garden. Yeah. Or by hoarding food or mm-hmm. doing Google searches for like immune boosting foods. Like how can I control my health through right. what I'm eating? Um, community wise, obviously besides like Netflixing, net, wait, is that a, did I just make Netflixing? Netflixing I'm a verb? <laughs> I think you just made it. Netflixing. I think I just did. I'm going to own it. Netflixing okay. with your yep. family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people are like sharing recipes and the internet has like finally become communitarian, which has to do with flipping things on its head. But, um, yeah. but the, you know, and the, pur- the purpose part of this is, is, you know, the sourdough and people getting offline and, and making something or going out into nature. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the thing that's really yeah. changed is like the mm-hmm. role of social media. Mm-hmm. How it, so? I mean, I, I'm seeing... I've been seeing a lot more kind of like viral cooking trends, like the focaccia with the flower designs yeah, yeah, everywhere. Yeah. Um, it's like, you know, a domino's falling. Everyone's getting into it one after the other. So how, 
is that, sorry, what, what were you saying that social media? Uh, yeah, yeah, no. So you were asking like, what's changed since the book. Yeah. So it's like most trends I think have just become like overemphasized, exacerbated. I see. I see. Um, but a big part of the book is about the impact of social media in mm-hmm. driving feelings of loneliness and envy and jealousy. Hmm. And, yeah. and some of that is performative with food, right? Like people taking pictures of their food and posting it online. And there's definitely still that performative aspect. And I would love to kind of dig into also the performative aspect of the Black Lives Matter movement right now, <laughs> especially among white brands, but brands, yeah. brands and white individuals such as myself that like I've been observing and feeling ambivalence around. Um, but like, you, you know, the so, so, yeah, I mean, like social media makes at the end of the day, like I, I talked to a number of different psychologists about this who study specifically the impact of social media. And it's like, by and large, going on Facebook or going on Instagram or going on Twitter, it does not make us feel like we belong. It makes us feel like we are on the outs. It makes us feel mm. less than. It makes us feel envious. Um, even taking a selfie, it's been um, measured at this point that you're likely to have um, less confidence in yourself after posting your selfie. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Um, and it becomes this kind of like vicious cycle of like feeling lonely. So you go online to get the likes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which like you may or may not get, but that's a very short lived reward. And sometimes because you're going online for the likes, you're ignoring people in person who you could be paying attention to. And Uh, looking someone in the eye or a hug is far more rewarding, even on a physiological level. Really? Hmm. But right now we're not like giving up those in-person reactions for online. We don't have the option for the Mm in-person reaction interactions. Yes. So it's like a stop gap. And we're also in this weird phase where like, you can't really brag about much online. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, it's, I almost feel like the internet's become like a, a more friendly place. I don't know. You can disagree with me. I yeah, it's maybe like a sort of like a, a re- understanding that we're all here. What because you know there's no other alternative. There's no like I can't go to a restaurant with my friends or have a dinner party, right? Right. You know, there's there's just a viral dinner or not vir- virtual dinner party with my friends, and then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's also like, you don't have influencers posting about like their trip to the right. Galapagos or Turks and Caicos. Like no one's going anywhere. No one's mm-hmm. eating anything that's particularly exciting. I feel like mm-hmm. a lot of what's online is either activism or something genuinely useful, like tips on how to survive this moment. Right. Right. Or it's like this communitarian trend, like the focaccia or like windowsill scallions. <laughs> right, yeah. right? like how to regrow one. your food scraps <laughs> yeah so do you think that these participating in these trends and posting it whether it's a selfie or the scallions or a black box for black lives yeah. matter maybe there's different answers for all of these things but do you think it contributes to that sense of disconnection so yeah folks? i mean i've been thinking about this a lot because mm-hmm. i think at the beginning of the pandemic prior to George Floyd's very public and gruesome killing. Mm -hmm. um, I do think that people were using pictures of food 
in a way that at least for me, it was making me feel less isolated. Um, I haven't been able to like find data on this yet because it's all very new. Right. But I was like, okay, everyone's at home. No one knows what to do with themselves. Like we can all mm, say hooray for each other for accomplishing something. Right. The same thing Mm -hmm. with sourdough bread. People were like posting their loaves, even if they were terrible. It was like, yay, you tried good for you. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like in internet pre-COVID, people would have been like, that's terrible. Why did you post a picture of this? Like there, <laughs> there was something that was just like more friendly. Oh, I see. Um, yeah. I do though, I've been thinking a lot lately about the black boxes phenomenon because on Blackout Tuesday, like I don't even remember what the hashtag was. Like uh-huh. it, it, I don't know. It, I posted a black box because I felt obligated to. And then I felt mm-hmm. really angry that that was apparently the way that my concern with black lives was being measured by others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it felt extremely performative, mm-hmm. which is a part of the black lives matter movement. Like the, you know, part of what I've been seeing a lot of my friends posting about who are black and are journalists. There are a lot of people are like suddenly getting um, calls for like, Oh, can you write this article? And they're like, well, okay. So where have you been until now? And you know, are these asks going to go away? Like, is it, is it performative? Mm -hmm. And I think some of the concern that I've heard voiced in the black community is like how much of this is genuine and going to be lasting and the black boxes to me felt like the same thing as posting a picture of food porn to mm-hmm. show somebody like ha- how I much see. of a foodie you are. Yeah. Um, I, you yeah. know, it's, it's double edged at the same time. Like I think social media has created an avenue for people to go to protests, to um, capture and expose uh, these inequities and, brutal um tactics by by police um like it's it's kind of like this necessary evil right now but there is this uh, aspect of of its use in this activism that i think is kind of pointless and mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. Dis- disingenuous yeah yeah so it's no substitute for real action just like um you know when somebody posts a food photo, it's it's not going to be this, I mean, not necessarily going to be this wonderful experience that actually happened, right? Is that, is that right? Idea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in, in the book, mm-hmm. I, I end up talking about food porn. And one of the things that I found is that a, a number of kind of these food influencers who are posting gorgeous pictures of their food online, um, a lot of them never eat the food. It's oh. thrown out. Yeah. <laughs> Stilling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and I, actually there's this interesting study in the UK when, um, a lot of like food, food porn and food porn, meaning like an image of a food that, that is supposed to make you hungry, okay. right? Like mm-hmm. the close up shots or something yeah. that's like kind of over the top. Um, in the UK, they found that it was contributing to additional food waste. No kidding. Because people are like going out, buying these kind of obscure ingredients to make something that looks really cool online but doesn't actually taste that good like a unicorn maybe yes that would be a good example okay yes like unicorn cakes which was was the most googled recipe in i think 2018 wow but like what's cool about a unicorn cake flavor wise 
nothing. It just looks cool. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same thing as rainbow bagels and uh, the the Starbucks Frappuccino with a gazillion calories. I, I don't even remember what it was called. Is it the unicorn Frappuccino? Perhaps. I don't know. It's in the book. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. This is food waste. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, We're going to cut to a quick little commercial interlude, but I want to talk a lot more about these themes and also your global um, research on them just after a quick little commercial break. This episode is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. All right, we're back chatting more with Eve Turo-Paul. She is the author of the just-released Hungry Avocado Toast, Instagram Influencers, and Our Search for Connection and Meaning. And we were just talking about how, you know, a lot of this signaling is just for show, I guess, um, within this this new sort of digital landscape of food that we're seeing – um, I want to talk about avocado toast because that's on the cover. Yeah. The cover is avocado green. It's really lovely. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like avocado toast has become this icon for millennials and mm-hmm. foolishness. Yeah. Right? Yeah. How did that happen? Well, I mean, yeah, that's a good question. And I actually, so you and I have talked in the past about the rise of kale. And I did like this whole investigative story about how kale became cool. I have yet to do a proper investigation of how avocado became Mm. cool, which I really do need to do. Um, Mm -hmm. But avocado toast in and of itself has become symbolic of the frivolity and um, like the, uh, I I need my morning coffee, the, the, how, how irresponsible young people are with their money. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's in part because this is global. Like you can get avocado toast anywhere. At this point, any right. urban center, like you could be, um, you can be on any continent. You can be in Africa, you can be in South America, you can be uh, in the U.S. You're going to find avocado That's toast. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Itself. In right, exactly. Like how food cultures become homogenized, mm-hmm. um, and young people are willing to spend the money on it. I believe in part because it is so photogenic, mm. and you know it's important to kind of back up and you know, I'm kind of ragging on food porn and ragging on the black boxes, but, you know, a core part of what I'm interested in is asking the why. And at the mm-hmm. end of the day, the the why people are bothering to do this is a deep desire to be accepted and to feel mm-hmm. loved and to feel like they belong. A part of the clan. Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. we are facing a loneliness epidemic alongside COVID, that's really serious. And um, I do think that the avocado toast fad plays into that, you know, like, yes, in part, it's 
it's super simple, right? Like, you know, again, like, you know what you're eating, like for yeah. the control and safety aspects of things. I think that's really Two satisfying. Things. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do. And, and like, you can feel good about it. Like it has healthy fats and you're getting usually your whole grains. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but let's be real. Like it looks pretty. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that a big reason why it's become this global phenomenon is it's the perfect thing to capture on your phone and like slightly edit and post online. And it's also a symbol of money, mm. right? Because it's expensive. And a lot of people will say there's, there's this author um, or this like political commentator in, in Australia, Bernard Salt, who basically was like, if young people in Australia stopped buying avocado toast, they could buy a house, um, <laughs> which probably is not economically true, Right, but right. like, but like, he has a point. It's a stretch, but right. <laughs> yeah. But like, young people in Australia are complaining often that they can't afford uh, to pay rent. Um, that that you know, basically, like basic living is is really difficult. But when you look at spending behavior, um, urbanites in Australia are also far more likely to be spending their discretionary income on food and and on delivering food. food. Yeah. Yeah. And coffee. Yes. And, and all these things that are, are, you know, sort of maybe not your bread and butter foods, but like the, the, the trendy foods, right. Right. You know, the coffee, the shake or whatever those, you know, drinks are frappuccino. (laughs) (laughs) But this, this also like speaks to those food tribes, right? Like Mm -hmm. food sophisticates Mm -hmm. or foodies is another tribe. And to me, like all of this, is a commentary on how isolated we've become. And this is pre-COVID, you know, culture that I'm talking about. But like, you know, we are not going, we're far less likely to be going to our religious institutions. Right. Right. Like we're more likely to to move away from our parents. Um, We are less likely to know our neighbors. And a need for community and belonging is a part of, being human. Hmm. And, and I think that people are starting to really observe this in themselves in this current moment, because they're, at least I've been feeling it, there is this yearning for connection. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, no, I was gonna say, I mean, it's an interesting moment, because I think, at least for us, like, we're actually starting to get to know our neighbors. Uh, oh, right. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but a lot of food culture and the way that things are performative online is to me a search for that sense of belonging and community in, because we're not getting it um, in, in most of, you know, in, the, in these other traditional ways, we're not, right. those aren't being fulfilled anymore. It's gone out of fashion. If you, if, I mean, religious uh, organizations, you know, to some extent, um, what I thought was so fascinating was that you tied the, these food trends um, and behavior trends really um, to a really, well, you've, you've taken on a really global perspective right from the get-go. So, you know, everything from talking to a food food blogger based in Mumbai, uh, Amit mm-hmm. Patnaik, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, who, who commented on how young people are going out to eat more and spending money on food, and to a friend of yours in Seoul, um, Hyunji Cho. Hyunji, yeah. Hyunji, um, who said that, you know, 
her parents' generation saved up to buy a house, but, you know, to a lot of the young people that she knows, it's like, why, why even try? Because they don't think that it's realistic. So, yeah. yeah. You know. I mean, a lot of food culture is driven by fatalism. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a big topic. But I'm just curious, like, why did you think it was important to look for these global trends as opposed to just kind of, you know, keeping it more narrow? Yeah. Like, does it get too broad? Yeah, I mean, it's so funny because the book was a big undertaking. And after I pitched it and got it you know, so a publisher picked it up. I was like doing the outline and I had a complete panic attack because I was like, oh, wait, this is like five books in one. <laughs> like, what have I done to myself? And it's a, it's an intense book. There's a lot in mm-hmm. there and there was a lot that was cut out. It's fascinating, <laughs> though. I love it. Um, but, but I felt it's a lot because I'm talking about these universal human needs. And I wrote my first book, um, A Taste of Generation Yum!, really about the millennial generation in the United States. And after that came out, I received calls from around the world of people saying, this is not an American trend. This is happening everywhere. And I also have the pleasure of being a public speaker. I talk a lot about the, you know, my research. um, And I've had the chance to present to diverse audiences around the globe. And I also have had people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s raise their hands and say, you know, a lot of these anxieties and pressures and fears that you're talking about driving behavior, like you're talking about me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. what I began to realize is that the digital age, you know, access to our smartphones and 24-7 news and um, email has homogenized global culture in a certain way. So that what I am experiencing as a millennial in living in New York and and now in Chicago, um, it's really not that different from someone else, no matter where they are, no matter what age they are, who is also um, on social media and connected to email and receiving 24-7 news because these technologies are making us incredibly anxious They're using up a lot of time. They make the world feel very dangerous um, when it is and when it isn't. Uh, Mm -hmm. They take away our attention from the people, our loved ones who are with us in person and place this kind of um, false uh, promise of acceptance with a wider uh, cohort of Mm -hmm. quote friends Mm-hmm. And, and it also, they keep us looking at screens and all of these things are having such intense impacts on our well-being uh, that it's being reflected around the world. And I, I spent a great deal of time traveling, talking to people, uh, and I, I went to Korea for a week and to China. I was in Shanghai and Beijing, and then I went to Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, and... Lots of lots of um, FaceTime and Google Hangout calls with people okay. in like South Africa and South America. I couldn't get wow. everywhere. Uh, a lot of a lot of people in India, like food culture in India right now is so fascinating. Hmm. Um, and it was like in part what was interesting was, was seeing like the nuances of how this shows up in different cultures. But a big part of what I continue to be fascinated by is just the similarities And like, if you have a similar input, (laughs) no, you know, like just on the human psyche, like you have a similar output. 
hey, we're all on, you know, Instagram, TikTok. Right. It's right. shared. Yeah. Right. And at, but at the same time, like what my research, like it's just not applicable to someone who looks like me uh, mm-hmm. and is my, you know, age and socioeconomic status who is not online. Right. Like if they don't, if they don't know that Kim Kardashian is married to Kanye West and they do not care. (laughs) (laughs) And, and like they do, and they haven't watched the George Floyd video or they have, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not constantly checking their email to see if Uh, they're needed. Like those individuals just have a very different life experience right now um, and are probably less likely to be Instagramming their avocado toast. Absolutely. So you, one would think, you know, not to sound too Pollyanna, that um, more empathy throughout the world mm-hmm. of various different cultures might be engendered through this shared yeah. digital landscape. Yeah, I think that's, that's totally point. true. Mm-hmm. And something that I'm really excited about is mm-hmm. the prospect right now of food being a conduit to a social justice movement. And um, uh, a a way for us to appreciate each other's quirks and differences. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I I do think that that's what it, that's what food has become over the last Mm -hmm. like 10 years, right? People travel to eat. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it was like that whole spike in people looking for like the most authentic quote unquote taco place or, um, Mm -hmm. and Uh, right now you're seeing this renewed focus on, you know, how can we be more empathetic and understanding of one another, but also like, how can we be more sustainable? And food culture is actually the most effective way for us to be combating the climate crisis uh, by cooking and eating in ways that we're starting to cook and eat during uh, shutdown. Um, But it's also like, how can we create a global food culture that is more appreciative of the, the history and heritage of communities of color, which will mm-hmm. in turn empower people to take more control over their own health and well-being, but also diversify uh, what we're eating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, yeah, I mean, I think that food, food is empathy, right? Like going and sharing a meal with people. It's, And I think that that part of intimacy is obviously something that all of us are craving right now. But I'm very excited to see how people use food as Mm -hmm. an antidote to this moment um, as we emerge out of it. I love that that hopeful note um, to end on. And I love how in this book you do explore how, you know, there's a sense of connection that can be forged through um, eating locally. I mean, as, as, you know, kind of like trite as that might sound you've shown in this book how that at least you know gets people started on a path of thinking about all the stages of uh the food from the farmer which you know may have been actually the person you bought it from in that Mm -hmm. case if you're eating locally so i would think that you know what you're saying um perhaps will uh kind of forge these new connections yeah i hope it does and i think you know people are, are eating more locally and um, finding that there's a lot of really special, amazing people right where they are. Right. Absolutely. 
Um, it looks like that's about all the time we have, but there's so many topics in this book that we haven't even gotten to. <laughs> I mean, they're really, really fascinating stuff. I mean, so, I mean, just from, from the wellness trends, which is a huge, you know, topic that, uh, a lot, a lot of people, uh, like to make fun of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I found myself laughing a lot during, good, um, good. you know, reading this book because, uh, it's 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 so fascinating how these trends um, are are so much bigger. I mean, we kind of joke about the, some of these things and cast them aside, but they they have a lot of consequences. So your book really flushes that out. Um, so well, tremendous! That's, that work. was the hope. That was yeah, the hope. yeah. Well, tremendous work, Eve. This is really really an incredible work of research, and I think it's a very timely one. Too. Thank you, thanks, Kathy. I appreciate it, and thanks for taking the time to chat with me about it. Absolutely. So um, you can find out more about uh, Eve and her work on, on your website, right? Just yes. Eve Turo Paul. Eve Turo Paul. There's also the hungrybook.com. Uh, and because this was so research heavy, I actually ran an original study for the book. And that study is also now available as of Friday, as of a couple days ago. So um, cool. yeah, if you have a company with a budget, which is not many companies right now, there is a research report that's super insightful too for sale that's awesome yeah that's awesome i hope people dig into that and i hope people you know check out this book to to maybe get another sense of of all the trends that we're seeing right now and have make more sense of it yeah and find well-being right there's tips in there how how you can feel well and at this point i think all of us are in a self-care mode so i hope people can take something of use out of that as well Absolutely. So thank you so much, Eve. Um, I hope everyone checks out Hungry out right now from Bella Books. And um, yeah, that's about it for today's show. But we'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. So thank you, Eve. Thank you to our uh, Heritage Radio Network engineer, G. G. Paul. And uh, we'll see you next week. Eat Your Words is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.